The Stanley Cup playoffs are underway for 2020. Happy August, everybody. Hi, everybody. I'm Darren Millard, along with the co-founders of Ingoal Radio and Ingoal Magazine, Kevin Woodley and David Hutchison. This is Ingoal Radio, the podcast. Today, we will chat with Kevin Weeks of the NHL Network, chatting about what's happened so far in the goaltending world and how you get ready after a long pause. Kevin has some great tips for everybody that is going to go back on the ice later this month or into September. But uh, we chat about the Stanley Cup playoffs to start. And fellas, I believe I raised uh, the question of how many teams we would see play multiple goaltenders in the early going of the playoffs. And it was kind of open-ended for the entire postseason. But the number has been extreme for what we've seen, considering that the playoffs truly, like in a traditional year, haven't even started uh, as we record this podcast. So uh, I put the number at around 10 was my guess. You guys were much lower uh, and we're approaching double digits right now. Your thoughts, and this is the number of goaltenders that have actually started a game for their teams. Uh, Hutch, let's start with you because you are the detractor to this theory and this trend. Uh, well, it wasn't detracting the theory. I just sort of thought it would be less than fewer than you guys thought it would be. Um, and of course we've had a nice little offline argument about whether the round robin even counts or not. And apparently you all think I should have clarified it a long time ago. I needed to spell it out in the contract. I didn't think it was going to be anywhere near 10. The fact that it's five, 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 five in the qualifying series. Yeah. Yeah. Five. It's even that surprised me a little bit because I, I understood everybody's rationale and for sure there's more tough decisions than ever before, but I still thought that guys would ride their horses. And uh, so the fact that it's been five surprised me. The round robin, to me, that doesn't count because there's no more at stake there than the Major League Baseball All-Star game in terms uh, of seeding. I, I disagree with you there. And of course, guys are going to rotate to have a look at everybody. It's like the, the play-ins in the Olympics where everybody gets a shot and then they decide who their guy is. But you don't think a but, number one seed in the round robin is important when you're going to get a Montreal or a Chicago in a 12 seed? I'm not saying it's not important. I just clearly... They're not taking it as seriously as they're taking those play-in games. I mean, the intensity is not the same. They're definitely playing a couple guys because they can. So, so to me, that doesn't count. But, uh, but still, seeing seeing the changes was uh, interesting. Um, I mean, we saw what happened in Columbus. That that quick hook makes such a huge difference. But, uh, but Woody Carolina too has been another good example. Yeah, to me. The interesting part of this is we can get into the debate on numbers and too high. I think we needed to set the parameters before we pick them too high. I actually thought we'd see more. I can tell you that I'm pretty confident we would have seen more. Uh, and this is a little aside, a little message to shooters. Stop hitting your freaking goalie in the head and warm-ups, boys. Because if anti-ranta doesn't get pegged in the warm-ups and have to be declared unfit to play in the first end of back-to-backs, my information is he would have started the back end of back-to-backs and we would have had one more number to add to this list. As it was, interestingly enough, Darcy Kemper has to play them both and he was good. 19 saves in the first period, 39 overall in that win and then 49 in the clincher two days later. So, um, you know, the whole theory on, on you know, rest, playing the rested guy has diminished over the years. But when it was originally put out there, the gap in save percentage uh, that was sort of cited in that study has come down quite a bit since, you know, with a larger sample size, more people measuring. And I would argue the gap between starter and backup shrinking uh, since the, since that was sort of first published. But interestingly, first published by Eric Tulski, 
who is now running the analytics side and doing a whole bunch of things for the Carolina Hurricanes, who were the only team that went in. A lot of teams went into that that qualifier round saying, we're going to need both guys. Carolina went in saying, we're going to play both guys, and they stuck with it. And I thought that was the most interesting, compelling decision of the first round in terms of tandems, because it wasn't just that they did it, it was the nature in which they did it. Peter Morazic was not at his best in game one. They won anyways. Peter Morazic was exceptional in game two, and they, they took a 2-0 series lead. I thought they'd stick with him, not just because he won two games, despite having a plan to go to Reimer, but because of the way it went. Peter's a guy who rides highs and lows, relies on rhythm and timing. There's a lot more movement in his game, relies on athleticism as opposed to structure. And so I wasn't surprised. He didn't look great in the exhibition game, I thought, either. And he didn't look exceptional at all, frankly, in game one, but he looked really good in game two. And I'm thinking as a goalie coach, as a, as a coach, I'm thinking, my rhythm guy just found his rhythm. Am I really going to put him on the bench one day later with the chance to, to clinch? And they did. And James Reimer was great. So like, it's, I'm not saying one's right, the other's wrong. But it's fascinating how it worked out. It's fascinating when you dig into sort of the history, whether it's Tulski is the analytics guy, uh, Rod Brindamore, obviously a player on the Carolina Hurricanes in, in 2002. And we talked to Kevin Weeks about this in the interview coming up because he was the goalie that alternated with Archer Zerbe in that playoff run of the cup final. 2006, Rod Brindamore is with the Carolina Hurricanes when Martin Gerber and Cam Ward both got turns in net. And they win the Stanley Cup using both goaltenders. But in both those cases, not on purpose. And so to sort of try and inform the decision a little more, I dug into and asked Paul Schoenfelder, their, their AHL goalie coach, because this is a franchise that is one year removed from a championship in the American Hockey League where they did what? Rode both goaltenders. They actually split. They, now, hey, it's the AHL. They played seven back-to-backs in their Calder Cup run in the American Hockey League. Like, it's a, just a different world. But they split four of them, including two in the Calder Cup final. Dustin Tokarski, and Paul said this, and I use it in an article at NHL.com. He, they don't win the championship without him. And the way they actively used him, they actually, they started Ned, Nedeljkovic for the whole first round, including back-to-back. Had back-to-backs to start round two, played Tokarski in the first end of the back-to-backs to give Nedeljkovic an extra day rest before coming back with him. To me, that's purposeful management of your goaltenders and the similarities that Sean Felder cited in terms of, you know, ice being poorer. It's harder work on a goaltender. Goaltenders getting drained more because they're losing more water. It's hot out. They were obviously playing in Charlotte. We're now playing in August in Toronto and Edmonton. All the things, condensed schedule, back-to-back games in the playoffs. There are a lot of similarities, and I thought that that was telling that Carolina went that way, um, despite the way the series was going, and interesting that they were rewarded for it. Now they get a whole bunch of time off, and I'm curious which way they go in game one, because my hunch is Mrazek, let him try and find his rhythm. History shows that he has a tendency to lose it after this much time off. So lots more fascinating decisions to come. A couple of things there. One, uh, when you're talking to your guys around the National Hockey League, uh, just check in and see what the, what the temperature is like at ice level because I'm told that it's hot even though they're keeping the rinks really cold uh I I've I've heard that the that the players are finding it hot so just a a little aside there uh, assignment for you uh the other one is uh do you think after what we've seen in this qualifying round 
do you think teams will be more uh, adapt to switching up their goaltenders in, in the first round and and on? I think it's probably going to depend on team to team because I thought there were other opportunities, frankly, where I'm with you, Darren. I thought we might see a switch and we didn't. Um, I thought the New York Islanders playing back to back games with a two nothing series lead might go to Thomas Grice. They didn't. And I and I thought that that was Barlamov's worst game and it put him in a situation and ended up winning anyways because Florida didn't. Well, they weren't going to exercise their option in Dreger because of what the, the Bobrovsky contract situation and because of what Bob is. Um but Varlamov had his worst game playing back to back, and now you had to come back with him on for his fourth game in six nights with a chance to clinch. And that could go the other way in a hurry. So that surprised me. I think you could see more teams look at it because it's a seven game series. The urgency of a five game five game series may have changed some of those decisions. I mean, Rod Brindamore was pretty brave doing it. If they lose that game, if Reimer's not good and they give life to the New York Rangers, who now have Shesterkin in net, uh, who who is a kid who showed in his 12 games in the regular season, he could steal, you know, he could steal games and could have potentially stolen a series. Brennamore's getting second guess six ways from Sunday. So I, I think it was a braver, tougher decision in a short series than it will be in a seven game series. I also think it's going to depend on the schedule. And Brennamore said that himself uh, just the other day after they clinched. It's going to depend what the schedule. I have like. heard that there's going to be some back to backs in some series. There, there has really? to be. They've they've only allotted 14 days for each round from here on forward, and not every team is playing on game one. So if you start on day two and you go seven games, you have to have back-to-backs in there. I think each team can expect at least one back-to-back, depending on where it is and how their goalie is feeling. And I think you got to lean on the goalie coach. I think we will see more of this. Jacob Markstrom had his worst game for the Canucks playing in back-to-back, made technical detail mistakes that I haven't seen him make all year. And he got roasted on each one on sharp angles. Is that because of back-to-back or because four months off and, and it's, we're three games in? And that I don't know. You know we, you life would have being to, totally different in the bubble. Yeah, there's a lot of different factors. Is even the start time, right? They started yeah. that game at, at 9 o'clock local time. It was supposed to be 7 or uh, 8.45 local time. It got pushed back 20 minutes because the Blackhawks game went to overtime earlier. And, and I should mention that was PM because... We have seen games right. start at yes, not, not local, but uh, but the East Coast teams uh, games are starting at 9 a.m. on the West Coast. So anyway, yeah, and and so so you're absolutely right. It's a great point, Hutch. Um, there are other factors that could have played into it beyond fatigue. Um, and we, you know, Markstrom's not a kind of guy who's gonna like. He was asked about it post game. He's not gonna get into those types of details. That he just was thankful that his his boys picked him up on a night when he didn't play his best and made in his you know he admitted mistakes. To me, though, it's like I talked to a couple other goalies around the league, texted with them last night when we saw those details slip. And, you know, and, and that's one thing they thought, too, like fatigue. And it could be the pressure, too. Like, I mean, they could be yeah. choked up. First be time, first time in the playoffs, Markstrom. Yeah, you miss your spots. But I would argue first time in the playoffs, all the other conditions we talked about in terms of you know the schedule and back to backs on a late, late night start with all that pressure. Whatever the case, he missed Little details in post-play execution that I don't think I've seen him miss almost all season, and it cost him three times from sharp angles. And I, I just think that anytime things are that uncharacteristic, he never gave up a goal off a sharp angle or a net play situation all season. Um, anytime it's that uncharacteristic, you got to think there's external factors. Hutch, do you think we'll see more flip-flopping as the first round works its way through? I mean, I think I agree that it's a it's a team by team thing, and based on the schedule, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna mea culpa. I didn't realize we'd be having back to backs in the in the first round here. 
And I think that's huge. You should hang out uh, with Woody and I more. I know I should. I should just get back off the road and hang out with you guys online more. <laughs> well, you know what would have been fascinating, and we never got to see it. Uh, apologies to the people of Edmonton, but if that series had gone five games, right? Because they their games four and five would have been back to back, five games in eight nights in that situation. Uh, and interestingly enough, Koskinen like didn't start the first game, but he had to play the first game. That one would have been interesting. And 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 again, interestingly enough, like a lot of the focus in Edmonton will be on Koskinen and on Mike Smith, like. The Blackhawks beat you with basically like, I think I haven't looked at Crawford's numbers when it was all over, but like to the point of the fourth game, he was basically 845 goaltending. Didn't carry Price you. No, he didn't carry Price you at, at, at all. Didn't Man, need how to. fun was that to watch? I yeah. knew, yeah. I, we all knew it was possible. Uh, I still, like, I said it was possible because I didn't want to be the one person to say, he'll never do it, you can't do it, and have him do it. I, I I mean that that just blew me away. Uh, Montreal I thought it was Pittsburgh. possible, but I didn't think it would be possible after that long break where we knew he didn't even have his gear with him in Washington State. But uh, but what do you think? You thought maybe different. Do you think he got the in goal bump from the webinar that we did with him? Oh, clearly, clearly. I think all these guys should be lining up to do a webinar with us before the first round and and change their fortunes like Kerry did. Um, you know, it's uh, it's funny because I I do think that him not having his gear for so long. And as he admitted in late June, having not seen a shot in four months, like that sort of set off alarm bells in Montreal. We talked about this a little bit. I just think that's the norm for him. And and maybe that did contribute to the comfort level. And maybe it didn't. Maybe it's just the rest. Um, but I, I do think for the guys who I thought would have the toughest time with this are the guys that need to be on the ice in June twice a week in July and, and all of August and the guys that just pack it away and don't think about hockey. And all of a sudden this became a four month break, just like their regular off season. Like again, how much of a difference does it make? I can't say, but for sure they've got it in their hip pocket that I've done this before. I haven't seen a shot for three, four months and got my gear on. And two weeks later I was ready to go as Kerry texted me. I kind of asked that question by text message. I needed a, I needed his voice for a call. And when he just fired back, like, Three weeks is a lot of shots, Woody. Let's get let's get her going here. Like <laughs> training camp and three weeks of shots. He he was fine. There was there was no problem, and and he looked pretty damn good in the first round. Interestingly enough, I had another another person text me this uh, who's in the NHL, so I won't divulge the name. Um, but a goalie coach um, with 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 another team. Um, notice anything like as good as Kerry was. Was he carry carry or was there any difference in you guys notice any difference in his game? Because we both thought the same thing. Um, and I thought it was interesting that we, we both had the same observation about how he played in that first round against Pittsburgh. Did you guys see a difference in what we would consider classic carry versus that carry? One of the things that I enjoyed the most about that first round series with him is we saw the same sort of technical brilliance that we've come to expect. But I also thought there were a lot of times when he threw it out and and would sort of throw a different look at shooters that we weren't maybe used to seeing. And, and I really enjoyed that because now you're, now you're going away from the book and you're going on instinct and experience and, and you're controlling the game. You're not just reacting to the game. And, and I loved every bit of that in the first round series. It was a revelation for me. Uh, I mean, I think we really expect that sort of thing and that sort of, um, I wonder where it's that almost comes cliche from. to say that he was, but, but I just, it was he great, was, and I'd spent I'd spent two weeks before that watching Carey Carey Price highlights every night, 
Uh, we were at Eli Wilson's camp at Edmonton, and he's sort of the textbook for all the young goaltenders there. Uh, and still, it was uh, it was just brilliant to be able to watch. He was more active. Like yep. I don't I don't think there's any question. If you've watched him over the years, there was there was more activity, and yet, like you said, there's times he what threw do you mean it out by that? even with more the activity. Active. Like there was just there was more movement. It was he was still hitting his spots. Look at the PK sessions. Like he's just flying around in there, still under control, still getting rotation, still squaring up to each shot. But just there was he wasn't sitting back and and, and less casual, more active. There was just more movement. Well, there were a couple and, of occasions when he when he went into um, the old VH actually, as we were talking about our VH with Markstrom the other day. And then he busted out a technique we coined around the house as the diagonal horizontal because suddenly the VH became a very active one. Um, there were different components this time. Yeah, and funny enough that we, you know, it's interesting because remember when we had him on the webinar, uh, we talked like going over video to prepare for the webinar and then using it in the webinar. I think we were all surprised by how much we saw him use a traditional VH as a sort of post load, actually even outside the post on odd man rushes where he would load VH and use it to take away the short side high on the shooter, but be loaded for a big push across. And he talked about using that. And I just thought we saw more examples of those types of reads and those types of situations. And that's what I meant by being a little more active, Darren. Like we think of him as calm and composed and sitting back and waiting for everything to come at him. I thought there was more... He was a little more aggressive at times, uh, which leads to more activity, but without losing the calm and composure. When you can fly around on the PK like he did, and uh, you know, uh, kudos, uh, I'll, I'll give uh, credit, uh, Justin Goldman uh, from the Goalie Guild clipped quite a bit of them. So I saw him on his Twitter feed. Like I was watching the game, but then he would clip them and you'd see sort of as the Penguins are moving the puck all over the place on the PK, Carey just following it around again, like not passively, not beating everything on his skates, down quite a bit, but just really active and still hitting all his marks, never losing his rotation, always on spot, always square at each new spot. And then at the end of it, there are a couple of the sequences. There's one I remember where the puck was loose at the side and then he basically dove out and covered it, like so active like that. And then when it's all said and done, he stands up and looks like he's just getting ready to have his first cup of coffee. In the I'm morning. not going to lie to you. That bothers me. Confidence. That bothers me. I want to see some, some some huffing and puffing and like I I feel less of a human being when when he gets up and is just so calm. I'm not, oh. Looks like he just got out of bed yeah. and he's waiting for that first cup yeah. of coffee. And you got it. Like I, I'm sorry. There's a psychological element there, both totally. for his team, yeah. and for the peng- the Penguins. Like like you know, we saw Sid hit the crossbar in the elimination game. Like by the end of that, they've got to be thinking, I have to be perfect with a shot to beat this guy. And that's why you know we've written articles about it. The, the stats for him, when you adjust the numbers, this was a, not a Carey Price year, but he is one season removed from being second only to Andre Vasilevsky in the NHL in terms of goals saved above average. So this is, it's not like it was 2015 the last time he had the ability to dominate. And there's a reason players pick his name when they talk about the hardest goaltender to beat one-on-one in all those player bowls. And I think some of that crept into the heads of the Pittsburgh Penguins when, when I watched the way they were trying to move the puck. They just felt they had to create perfect plays at times to beat them or make perfect shots. That if there's a stat on forced misses of the net, I'm willing to bet Kerry was highest on that list in the first round. Before we get into the interview, I just want to clarify one thing. Uh, your your numbers on back-to-backs, did you say that they're growing back towards the same person playing uh, both games or reinforcing, uh, splitting them up? 
No, it would, it would, they actually, the numbers when they originally published and they became something that people talked about a lot since indicated that the gap between playing the rested guy and the starting guy was significant, like 0.02 on a save percentage, which is the difference between a 920 and a 900. And actually, I think in this case, the if to go right back to the numbers that Telski cited, and again, this was over a two-year sample size, was on a Broad Street hockey blog for the Philadelphia Flyers at the time. Look at now he's running the analytic. Like, I mean, he's obviously brilliant and a genius, and and but that's where he was before, and that's how far the game's come. Now he's running decisions like that. Um, it was actually 912 when you played the rested guy, and 892 when you played the tired guy. And this discussion emanated around Ilya Brzezgalov and the Philadelphia Flyers basically playing the wheels off the guy that year. And that's where it started. And for a lot of years afterwards, those were the numbers that were cited. When we started to get in, people started to to dig deeper into the sample size. The gap was still there, but it wasn't quite as big. And whether it's the increased sample size or sort of a change in trends. And as I said, I think it's there's more good number twos than like. We're not that far removed from the number two being a guy some teams were scared of playing, right? And now look at teams that are running like three, four deep with really good high-end talent. That's where when people say goaltending's never been better, I think you see it in depth. Um, the gap has shrunk there, and I guess that's what I mean. So it's no longer as um, absolute a statement that you're better to play the rested guy than to run the same guy out there back-to-back as it was before. Uh, anybody surprised that we didn't see Pekka Rene? Little bit, little I bit. I expected him for the last game. Except for this one note. I thought we might see him at the beginning, but he did not have a great training camp by some accounts. Scrimmages were, you know, a lot of goals went in on scrimmage. Pekka has traditionally been a very strong starter and UC hasn't. And I thought that, and, and John Hines even cited it uh, going into training camp that that might be part of their decision. Like Pekka's career best month is October and UC's worst is October. Of course, UC's always spent October as a backup. He's never been given the opportunity to get into a rhythm. I thought we might see Pekka early, but once we didn't see him at the start, I'm not surprised we didn't see him at all just because, and he even talked about this and we predicted it, as that role shifts, especially for a goaltender who has admitted to relying a little more on the feel and rhythm of playing often. I mean, we his empty net goal, we wrote an entire article on how his empty net goal is tied directly to not being comfortable when he isn't busy. He So one of his solutions was to handle the puck and stop every rim and, and those kind of things, which led to him stopping a tough rim, which led to the empty net goal this season. Like it's well documented and he's admitted it. Shifting to the backup role for Pekka Rinne was difficult and it will be a challenge he's going to have to figure out. Being able to be good when he doesn't play often if you know that, if your goaltender's admitted that publicly that it's a challenge, once he didn't start early in that series, I'm not surprised we didn't see him at all. Even despite all the historical relevance of of what he's meant to that franchise, and and it is like he is the franchise in a lot of ways for throughout his career. So um, no, just based on that, I'm I'm less surprised because of not just that clear evidence, but the fact he's also admitted it. Just a question for both of you, and I don't know the answer to this, but. Um, we see that teams are practicing in the bubble during these rounds. Uh, what's the practice time compared right now to what it might be like in a regular playoff time when they've got all this travel involved and, and how's that impacting things? I wish I could tell you, I Hutch, tell you. but okay. See, Darren's got more info here yeah, because sure. my caveat would have been most of us in the media 
aren't even freaking told. You may say you see their practices, but for the most part, we don't. Well, so it's a bit well, of a point see, of frustration. You see retrospectively, I mean. Yeah, I just, yeah. Uh, I heard this on one, one of the Zoom, and, and one of the great advantages for the media during uh, during this uh, return to play and this hub city and the bubble is we can jump on every single press conference with every single coach uh, via Zoom. So we have access to more teams because of this than than ever before. And I heard one coach say it's two-hour blocks uh, during the the qualifying round each team gets two hour blocks so of ice so how you in total yeah how you divide yeah. that up is up to you but so some teams will do an hour and then uh an hour with their with their extras they might go an hour 15 and then do some power play time but it's it's up to you uh mo- most teams are going with their regular group and then the extras uh the taxi squad uh in two different two different groups but it's one hour block per team and is and, that it, is that encompass what would traditionally be a game day skate as well, or is that in addition to? Uh, it it all depends. Yeah. Obviously, if you're playing at nine in the morning, you're not having a game no, day I skate. No, I know, I know that, but I mean in teams, terms of what they're allowed to do. I, I obviously, I believe, I believe each team gets two hours a day, and then it's uh, but it's it, totally yeah. inconsistent, and like there's not a lot of consistency to it. And I'm not even sure the notice is prepared in advance because I've seen other coaches talk about like having to like all about adaptability because they've had to change on the fly yeah. and. And At it bounces around, least, right? I can tell you. Like it's not That's 10 a.m. I mean. every day. Yeah, it's, it could be 3.45 one day. and Totally inconsistent and nothing like, because I think Hutch's question is more to the point, the, the rhythm that goaltenders are used to, it is nothing like what they would do in a normal regular season. It is all over the I place. I was so excited to have an answer. I didn't even listen to Hutch's it was real a good question. One. It was a good one. Well, it, it, not compared to a normal regular season, but I actually was wondering if there might be the opportunity to get a little bit more work in right now because they're not having to face travel. Well, I think you might see that uh, as we move along and the teams get paired down. You lose eight teams uh, and and there's there's ice available. So you, so you might be able to get a little bit more work. And you're not, I mean, the players don't want to go home and do something. They've got nothing else to do. So part of the problem too is, uh, and you're right, maybe, and I've actually seen players uh, talk about this as it's, Hey, this is great. It kills more of our day and we have a lot of day to kill. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're not just walking across the hall to the practice rink Uh, in Edmonton. At least it is 40 minutes each way, uh, by charter bus to get to Mm. the practice. rink. I think that's going to, they're going to use the rink attached to Rogers place a lot more. Uh, in, so again, in as round. we move yeah. forward, this these challenges should become less. You're right, Hutch. It'll be interesting to see because traditionally in playoffs, practice time gets shut down. It's a challenge for goaltenders, good, right? Good question, we, Hutch. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for contributing, Dad. <laughs> uh, we will uh, we'll deal with, you know, the, should mention there's a couple of uh, really uh, long consecutive start streaks that were halted in that, uh, in that qualifying round. Uh, Marc-Andre right, Fleury with, with Vegas had Robin Leonard. Uh, step in uh, with the Nashville Predators. Pekka Rene had his consecutive start streak stopped, and also Henrik Lundqvist with the New York Rangers. We'll deal with the Henrik Lundqvist side of things uh, late in the interview with Kevin Weeks, and then we'll jump on uh, afterwards and with our thoughts. But uh, off the bat, Kevin Weeks from NHL Network, former goaltender, now commentator, uh, chatting about what he has witnessed in the qualifying round in conversation with Kevin. The Kevin and Kevin Show. <laughs> I'm putting that in. Okay, well, welcome back to the Ingo Radio Podcast, Kevin Weeks. This is a little, little sooner. I think you may, this is a new record for the fastest return guest. 
And yet we had to have you back on because everything is happening in the world of the National Hockey League and goaltending. And I know you're on top of it with NHL Network and in touch with these guys on the regular, even from the bubble, dropping texts and dropping calls and keeping in touch. Goaltending in the National Hockey League, decisions all over the place, tandems, who to play, when to play both. Like there's so much going on right now. Let's just start. I want to start, Kevin, with a team that you have experience with, a situation that you have experience with, Carolina Hurricanes. Peter Morazic looked like he was finding his feet in game one, was exceptional in game two. I'm thinking rhythm goalie. He's found his rhythm. They're going to stick with him. Boom. They go to they go to James Reimer in game three, sweep the Rangers. What do you think of that decision? And what do you think of what we're going to see moving forward in terms of teams? Hey, I think teams are going to need two goaltenders, but using two on purpose like that, I loved it. What do you think? Yeah, you know what? Peter has been awesome. He touched on it in, in my Instagram live that you just joined me on uh, at Kev Weeks. And thanks so much for joining me, man. I would say Peter's been tremendous. They, they do a great job of playing defensively and structured. They work exceptionally hard, that group in Carolina. Roddy Brindamore, my former teammate, and I think the future Hall of Famer as a player, um, he just does an outstanding job. I think he's one of the best coaches in the league already. And that's reflective in how prepared his team is, how diligent they are, the details of their game. And in saying all of that, they, they allow their goalies to have some predictability in terms of where they're facing shots from, the danger of shots. But all that to say, Peter Mrazic was still really good in games one and two. It made some, some glove saves in particular uh, at close range in both games. And you know, Roddy made the decision in uh, consultation with Jason Mazzotti, their goalie coach, who he defers to a lot in the goalie decisions, to play James Reimer. And I thought it was a masterful move. And it allows James Reimer to stay sharp. He went in and he was money. Uh, that Especially that one series of saves, the three saves, and then he dove across and got that one with his paddle. I think Batman, the defenseman, got the first one. So uh, I really love the move. And, you know, this way they know that the goalies that is specifically both Peter and, and Reimer know that they're respected. They know that their contributions all year uh, mean and count for something and that they're going to be counted upon in, uh, in their run here in the Stanley Cup playoffs uh, now and as we continue to go forward. And as you touched on too, when we we're just on Insta Live, it's a team-by-team basis, but I do love the teams where it comes down to communication, honesty, and transparency, Kev. And when you've got coaches like Roddy out of Campbell River, BC, I might point out, Campbell River um, native, of course, born and raised out there in BC. But when you got a guy like Roddy that is classy as he is, as a person, as honest with that level of integrity, and then that translates over into how he treats people, that goes a long way because that's something that I feel some coaches miss the mark on by not being transparent and by not having the right communication skills to show faith and also value in both goalies as people and also as goalies. You know, the other part of this I I just thought of is, you know, when you pick a goaltender and who you're going to go with in the playoffs, usually you've got an entire season to lean on in terms of body of work, what you're seeing from a guy. And I mean, as a head coach, right? They've seen the Mm -hmm. guy playing. They may not understand the intricacies of the position um, as much as a goalie coach, but they, you know, they can generally feel who's going well. They don't have that right now. For the most part, they don't have that. They're coming off this pause. They don't have that sort of track record. I remember a quote from John Tortorella actually heading into this where he talked about how much more he was going to lean on Manny Legacy to make the decision on who starts for them. 
Um, just because, and, and I think this may be important around the league, like without the benefits of games and sort of those types of results for a head coach to look back on, you really are trusting the goalie coach in terms of what he's seeing in practice from guys and his knowledge with each guy individually in terms of what their game looks like when it's on, even in practice. What, what are the keys that they know, hey, this guy's feeling good? And, and sometimes it's just the communication as well with the guy open on his communication about where he's at with his game before you and an ability to sort of have a head coach that trusts that when you relay it to him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a really good way of laying that out, Kev. As far as the goalie coaches, you know, I've spoken to many of them. I know you have as well. And I've spoken to goalie coaches that still have teams that are still playing right now in, uh, in the qualifiers and or the round robin, and even a couple who, who teams are out right now. And I think the biggest thing, even in speaking of France, Jean specifically, in my conversation with France with Tampa, he talked about even with the great Andre Vasilevsky, who's a Vezina Trophy finalist again this year, having won it already. Um, he said we, they basically started from scratch at the, resum- at the resumption of the pause. And he said they literally started with crease movement, skating. He said, we, see we just literally started from scratch, like from our skating, crease movement, post movement, on our feet, on our knees, on our knees, on our feet. And we just built everything. We just rebuilt everything and went through all the chapters of the book, starting with uh, the first one. And I thought that that was really interesting. So, um, you know, obviously Andre Vasilevsky is a superstar. He's one of the best boys on the planet. But if he can do that, and if he starts that way uh, in terms of the restart, it's pretty impressive. And I think that, you know, from all the other goalie coaches, they're watching your movement patterns. How's your skating? Are you crisp? Are you pushing hard? Are you stopping hard? Are you balanced when you stop, when you get to your spot? Are you able to recover into your post? Can you integrate into your post? Do you have the right save selection when you go into your post, given a situation? How hard are you competing? Uh, How hard are you really being able to track pucks are you watching pucks into your glove and into your body and quite frankly are you treating the game the practices like games themselves and those are a lot of the things that i've gotten from different people that i've spoken to and in almost every single instance those are the goalies that have started now sometimes there's you know we all know that there's there's some political weight and contract and different considerations but those are a lot of the things that i've heard from different goalie coaches that they were evaluating as they went along. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. We've really hammered a lot on crease movement. I think that, you know, just with the kids at Ingoal Magazine and just trying to relay that message, because, you know, it's one we've gotten every summer when we've had the, obviously, different summer this year, but in the summers we've been on the ice with Carey Price, and um, we hear it from Carter Hart in our conversations with him. Like, when you talk about the similarities between those two guys, and, and a lot of people like to make those comparisons, it all starts with the foundations of movement and good crease movement patterns, good habits, paying it. You know, we, every, all goalies want to get on the ice and practice and they want these drills with guys flying all over the place and, you know, multiple options and game like. But it all starts with no pucks, movement, making sure that's dialed in first and foremost. Doesn't matter whether you're playing peewee or you're a seasoned pro, uh, pro like Carey Price or you're just starting your pro career like Carter Hart. That's what those guys dial in on and that's what makes them so good. Um, in terms of getting game ready for this, that was one that I wasn't sure, like who's going to be able to feel the rhythm and timing of a game fastest. Totally. How'd you, how'd you like it? We saw a lot of scrimmages, you know, but I talked mm-hmm. to guys who said, even in scrimmages, it's not the same. Like, what do you th- like? you what do you remember from your career? What was it that helped you as much as the movement was a foundation? 
you know, throwing that switch to 10 guys flying all over the place and finding a puck, like what helped you best? Was there anything you could do in practice um, to sort of go from that to a game like situation and know you were ready and feeling good? I felt really for me, a lot of it was repetition through drills with a goalie coach, starting with crease movement every day, you know, your typical warm up uh, when you're on the ice with a goalie coach, getting on the ice early, half hour, 45 minutes where possible and getting some of those drills in with the goalie coach, as mentioned. And then honestly, the best thing for me, and I think it's the most underrated drill for every goalie in hockey at every level is rebound game. I feel like really? rebound game and point shots, like long point shots and, you know, just line up D or forwards that can shoot from a little bit more distance and let them have 10 pucks and just let them shoot every puck. They're shooting a score. Uh, although it's repetitions for the goalies, they're shooting the score from the point or just inside the blue line. And nothing better than to be able to feel pucks, track pucks. And then once you can feel it, you can track it. Then the subtlety of rebound control comes into play too, right? Then, you know, you're catching pucks with your glove. You're cradling the ones that come to your chest. You're scooping ones off the ground like a first baseman uh, off the ice for the low shot. The shots of the blocker, for the most part, you're angling them where you want them to go. And then do some where they just shoot them on the ice. Old school Harry Lumley. Like, and go down and do your butterfly save selection. And just try to ensure that you're feeling that puck off the blade. You have just enough pressure on your stick, which people don't talk about. Just enough pressure on your stick to be able to angle that puck to either side. If it comes straight five hole, you can deaden it. If it's a little bit off to your right, your blocker side, you can angle it into the glass or into the netting or into the corner. Uh, if it's over on your glove side, you can guide it into the glove sideboards and or glass and or netting um, or corner. And then again, getting back to the rebound game. I feel like the rebound game was awesome because it brought a competitive element to the guy who's the shooter up top. Pressure's on them to shoot, either to score or shoot to create, as Mitch Korn talked about. So are they shooting to beat you or are they shooting to, you know, get a maybe a little bit of an off-speed shot off your pillows? and hopes that it creates a rebound for one of the rebounders in front of the net. So a combination of those things were always best for me. Love it. Love it. Now, just to, I've seen different variations of rebound game. What, like, how was it set up? What, how did you like it set up the best for you? I loved it set up with the pucks up in the high slot, uh, probably about five, say eight feet above the, uh, say at the top of the circles, in the high slot at the top of the circles, about eight feet up from the hash marks. And set up, set up right in the center. I have my shooter. I have two guys flanking or, uh, sorry, four guys flanking. So two shooters or two rebounders, excuse me, beneath, like below the shooter. And then two just off of either post, just in front of me. And, you know, if the shooter shoots it and I make a save, it counts for one. And there's no rebound. Or if there's a rebound and, you know, we get it out, it goes past the dots, then it's a dead play. If it goes beneath the goal line, it's dead, and it's my point as well. But if it, uh, if the shooter misses the net completely and, you know, kicks the field goal, so to speak, and hits it off the glass or up in the netting or just misfires, and then that's worth two for me. So one pass off of every rebound, max one pass. It can't go toe-to-toe, you know, back, back and forth, back and forth, tic-tac-toe. That's how you blow your groin or your ACL, heaven forbid. And we wanted it as realistic and game-like as possible. And those games were really competitive. You know, I started doing that in the minors. It helped me a lot. Anytime I lost my game or I felt rusty at the NHL level or, 
you know, I was kind of lacking in confidence. It got me back. So those, a combination of those drills, but I think rebound, the rebound game, that brings out the competitiveness in your, in your shooters. They want to play because it's fun for them, so they want to participate. And it, it really stimulates a lot of game situations for you because you're seeing a shot from a prime scoring area, number one. And then number two, you know, you also have the added uh, challenge of being able to try to control your rebound. And in the event that there is a rebound down low, you're able to battle in a way that kind of simulates a game. So that's what I love so much about that one. I was just going to say that, that the competitive element there too, especially when we talked about, we started this conversation in terms of how do you get ready for a season and go from, you know, practice to a game environment, that competitive matters so much. And I thought a lot of the goalies I talked to heading into this talked about small area games as another way to sort of find that edge that, you know, even in scrimmages in a training camp, you know, you, you can kind of coast your way through it. But when you, when, once you bring out the compete, whether it's shooters or, or players, like that's that's where guys like that that little edge that competitiveness that's what gets you ready for a game. So it's interesting. I think in honor of that answer, we're gonna have to pull out a few of those variations of the rebound game that we've recorded over the years with pro goalies <laughs> in the summer and share it share it with our in goal mag audience here in the next week. Week see the other part I wanted to ask you about, uh, and I know we we got a quick quick little window here because you are a busy man right now with twenty four no teams playing an NHL Network going and all the great things you do Instagram Live. Thanks for having us on. I wanted to Thank ask you. about your experiences in Carolina because, you know, the, the whole concept of two and who's going to use two is, I think that's going to become, maybe I'll be wrong, but I think that's going to become a massive storyline. I'm, I'm watching it right now, uh, you know, with Montreal and Carey Price and, and Tristan Jari in the other end. So let's start with Carolina. You went to the Stanley Cup final in 02. Was you and Artur Zerbe, maybe not the same situations, but what does it mean when the team knows both guys they can trust and how important do you think it will be in these playoffs in particular? It really takes the pressure off of the team because the team know that they can't, you know, you really can't miss in the sense that whoever's in between the pipes is going to give them a chance to win. And they know whoever's in between the pipes is going to compete hard. And, you know, that's a great feeling because there's no, uh Oh, uh Oh, okay. We have to go to so-and-so. Oh, okay, we have to go to so-and-so. Uh, oh, we don't have confidence in so-and-so. We don't like when she's in the net. We don't like when they're in the net. You don't have that. You know, you feel like every time your team takes the, takes to the, the ice for a game, you know you have a chance to win regardless as to who's in. And that's a position of strength. And I always said this for the longest time, you know, especially here in North America, even here in the States, but even back home in Canada too. Some people just had, they were so wrong in looking at it like football. Like, the NFL is only 16 regular season games. No disrespect. I've got buddies in that league in different roles, but it's still only 16 games. The NHL is an absolute marathon. It's, it's literally like a triathlon of hockey and of pro sports. And being able to play that many games, 82 in the regular season, you already see how intense these qualifiers are now just to qualify for the playoffs, let alone be in the playoffs, right? So all of that to say... When you've got two, in some cases, three, how about St. Louis last year? What are you going to argue? Like, at some points, Jordan Bennington, Binner was a five in St. Louis, although he was wrongfully evaluated. And at other times, he was the four. And he's the guy that emerged to help win them their first Stanley Cup in over 50 years. And now go on to become a great goalie and an NHL All-Star in his first full season in the league this year. So I think that the team that have depth at the position, that do a great job of developing, which is something, 
you know, if I ever end up running an NHL team, that's going to be a big part of my mandate is being able to develop at every position, but especially at the goal position, having played it is develop assets at that position that are deep within the organization. So you don't get a sense of, uh Oh, you don't get a sense of holding your breath, regardless of who's in the net, whether it's your one, your two, your, your two plays like a, like a one, you know, your three plays like a two or a one, your four might be a bit more of a project, but within one or two years about depending on their development arc, you know, they could very well be a two or a one like Jordan Bennington became. So the coaches that handle it properly and that are transparent and that are respectful and the goalie coaches that do likewise, the organizations, the management that set that mandate, those are the teams I think that are best positioned for success. The odd time you have a rare, (laughs) the odd time you have a rare unicorn that is Gary Price, like Montreal, they're sitting in a, you know, a very unique situation because he's a very unique goalie and he's healthy and he's right. And he's so skilled and he's been so great. You obviously see how well he's playing against the pens again, but that that's very rare. Those are few and far between. I think most teams have to take a position where they develop assets at the position and it might take two for some teams. It might take three or four this year. Well, I was just going to say, like, as good as Kerry's been, I mean, I think there's probably a lesson there as well, Kevin, in terms of um, look how good he looks rested and, you know, totally. what what do we need to do to make sure we can get this guy to the end of a season looking like this as opposed to wearing him into the ground? And, and I don't mean to single them out. There are other teams that are in the same boat um, where they've just, you know, I mean, I think we're past the day of riding a guy so hard there's nothing left when it counts and i think you're seeing the value in in, in arrested carry price right now in the first round uh, against the pittsburgh penguins and probably something that if i'm the montreal canadians I, I may be investing a little more in making sure that i've got that again next season totally and i think that you know they they kind of took their eye off the ball a little bit because carry was such a luxury item and you know it was him and yarrow halak who came up together yarrow had an excellent career to this point you know won the majority of his career still playing a one level game and behind Tukaras and he's helped Tukaras be fresh, be sharp. Um, so I think after him, Montreal kind of took their eye off the ball a little bit. And fortunately for them now, I think Charlie Lindgren has some upside and I've seen some of his good games, especially when he really, when he first came up a couple of years ago. And I really love Caden Primo, Keith's son uh, and Wayne's nephew. I love Caden. You know, I, I remember Keith and Wayne telling me about him when he was young and you know, I just love everything about his game. Watching him at the World Juniors for Team USA, watching him at Northeastern uh, in college hockey and winning the back-to-back Beanpot, uh, prestigious Beanpot tournament in Boston. And, you know, he played very well this year in their AHL team. And he also played very well when he got called up. And nice to see. I think he's on a good trajectory for them. They want to get him as many games as possible. But you're absolutely right. A Carey Price scenario now is, is very rare. And you're right, him being rested, certainly helps him look as crisp and sharp as he's looked at this point so far in the qualifying round. Well, to continue with Carey Price, let's go to the comparison. Carter Hart, I know you've had a chance to talk to him. Um, we've had him on the podcast. You've had him on the, you've had him on, on with you. Um, what impresses you the most? I mean, obviously I'm biased. We've had these had interviews with him and got to see the whole package and what he does, but what impresses you as a guy who's played in the league for so long as a guy who talks to everyone around the league, when you watch Carter Hart play or when you talk to him or when you, hear his approach like what impresses you the most and what makes you you know what about it makes you confident that you know philly's got a good one for a long time because i know you are yeah no you 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 picked up on a lot of the same cues 
in Carter Hart. I mean, the first thing is his disposition. That's the first thing. You know, he's self-assured. He's very, very confident, but still respectful at the same time. He has a great sense of identity in who he is as a person, where he's from, and uh, also who he is as a goalie, which you pointed out. He's very at ease and very comfortable in his own skin, and he's very comfortable in his goalie gear. Nothing looks uncomfortable. It doesn't look forced. It doesn't look jittery. It's not herky. It's not jerky. And every goalie plays with their own cadence, right? Everybody has their own tempo to their game. I know you and I have talked about that before, where you might play with a little more bite. Uh, when Mike, when Mark Andre Fleury, excuse me, the flower came in, he was the fastest goalie I'd ever seen. Like as fast as I thought I was, he was the fastest goalie I've ever seen. He was lightning. Like it was so wild to watch. Looked like he was on fast forward. That's how fast he was. So you look at that as an example, Jeff, and you watch each goalie in a unique way because they're all different people. But I got to tell you, man, Carter Hart just looks technically flawless but still very skilled. He's able to read the game very well and process the game. And it, what's crazy is, <laughs> this is funny for a lot of your listeners, it was harder for him at the AHL level in Lehigh with the AHL Phantoms than it was at the NHL level. Like, that's what's wild to me. Like, keep in mind, he could have still been in junior in Everett out west, just yeah. south of you there in Washington State. And he's playing in the NHL. Like, it's wild. So he's just a rare combination of all those things. And, you know, there's a big part of this too, Kev, and, and I know you're well aware of this. And from your conversations with him, anytime you interact with him, you just get a really good feeling. And everybody that speaks to him, all the veterans. I spoke to Claude Giroux a couple years ago, and geez, like, we see your mind here, Kerry Price. Nate Thompson said it the other day. Nate Thompson played in Montreal. He just said it on our air the other day. Yeah, when we got Hartsey in there, it's, it feels a lot like uh, a guy that I played, played with in Montreal, meaning Kerry Price. And then here's another thing, too, for a lot of your listeners that's been awesome about Carter Hart is he's a workaholic. He's in great shape physically. He's in great shape on the ice. He's very methodical about his game. He's very deliberate about his game. He wants to get better. He wants to be great. He knows he can match up against anybody already. But his teammates love playing in front of him. And he told me that Brian Elliott had a huge impact on him this year. He said Brian Elliott had an amazing impact on him. And he said, as a veteran guy, Brian Elliott, you know, seen it all, done it all in the league, been an all-star multiple times, almost been out of the league, bounced back, been a one, been a one A, <laughs> been a one B, been a young guy coming into Ottawa. He's been an NCAA champion with Wisconsin. And Brian Elliott has been amazing to Carter Hart in terms of how he's treated him as a resource and, uh, and how he relates to him, calling him, texting him, going to lunch, going to dinner with him. I can't say enough great things about the moose, Brian Elliott. And Carter Hart will tell you that exact same thing. I'm not surprised to hear Brian Elliott, a guy who I think I don't think a lot of people realize, like, yes, NCAA champion and then right into the NHL completely had to rebuild how he played the game and he did it well playing in the National Hockey League just because mm -hmm. the style he was taught in college was so unique. Um, like that is not easy. And then to see the career he went on to have is uh, he's one of those guys we got to get on the podcast here because and we've talked about it a little bit just because of that unique path and because of 
you know, just that evolution he's gone through and su- and such a good guy as well. I want to la- ask you one last one, Kevin, because you got to go, but you you touched on it. Easier for Carter in the National than it was in the American Hockey League. We see Jordan, see Jordan Bennington, who I think his reads of the game are one of the things that separates him. Like as good as everything else is, that's, you know, you sort of have to, I think, to be as good, to be at the elite level. Yeah, hell, to be in the NHL, you have to have separators. Like, I think his reads separate him um, when, I, when I look at his game. Um, we've heard it from other guys. The game's just a little messier down there. And yes. sometimes those patterns and connecting the dots on those patterns can be a little easier in the National Hockey League. Do you think maybe there's more guys in the AHL that we're sleeping on because the numbers aren't quite where people say they need to be to move on and they might actually be better in the national hockey league. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, you know, you can make that case for several guys for sure. I mean, UC Saros is a good example of that. You mentioned him on, on Instagram live. He was really good in Milwaukee. He had a good record, but even sometimes the records aren't even indicative of how good the goalies actually are or can be, you know, very rarely do you get a guy like Terry Price who goes on and wins a Calder Cup. Uh, the way Patrick Waugh did coming out of junior and going up to the American League while he was still a ju- just finishing his junior season and going on to to win the Calder Cup as Patrick Waugh did, Terry Price did that in Hamilton with the AHL, then AHL affiliate of the Habs. Or Peter Morazic, who they started in the coast, who was great in my former junior team, uh, one of them anyways, with the, with the Ottawa 67s. And Morazic was in the coast. Morazic goes to Grand Rapids. He helps then head coach um when uh when the hl calder cup right like that's that's the wild thing about it when you when you think about and that's detroit's current coach right now it's just very rarely does that happen like right. for the most part you're slugging it out and you're playing you know i remember my days in american league i was fortunate my rookie year in the a to be a number one goalie right away and play a lot of games and there were a lot of veteran nhl guys or guys that had cups of coffee and it was the same thing when I went to the IHL, the old IHL. There was even more former NHLers. But playing three and three, you know, I, I played a lot of those three and threes, <laughs> right? Like Monday, sorry, Friday, 7 p.m., Saturday, 7 p.m. in different city. And then Sunday, say Binghamton, 2 p.m., Broome County Coliseum, as an example, or in Rochester, 2 p.m., <laughs> you know? So the, the AHL and the minors in general, more so here in North America than the minors over in Europe, KHL or Swedish Elite League or, or Swiss or what have you. I, feel, I find that the, the AHL is more chaotic and less predictable than the NHL is. And I'm sure you've heard that from a lot of guys too. And that's why sometimes you can have goalies down there. Like in Van, for example, you guys have Mikey DiPietro, who I loved in Windsor. And I'm always checking in with Ryan Johnson, my former teammate, RJ, who's one of the heads of uh, development for the Canucks. I'm like, RJ, at the, uh, tell me about, tell me about uh, Mikey DiPietro. How's he looking? How's he looking? How's he looking? Before that, it was Thatcher Demko. Tell me, how's Thatcher Demko looking? How's he looking in Utica? Tell me, tell me. So, yeah, I find that sometimes their skill and, and their talent, as we saw with Carter Hart and, and many other goalies, sometimes it's, it's not fully maximizing the HL because it's a little bit more of a scrambly, uh, more of a chaotic game, for sure. Okay, now I do have to have one last one or Darren Millard will kill sure, me because no I'm famous for last questions. And I would, <laughs> if good. I didn't ask you this one, I'd be hurting. How tough, obviously tough ending for the New York Rangers. Um, 
we had an article at ingolmag.com. We had some some access to analytics that you know, it, it drove me nuts this year around the trade deadline when a lot of people Agreed. talked about Hen- Henrik Lundqvist being done. Before they went to a three-goalie system, the adjusted numbers showed that Henrik was, not only was he playing well, he was still one of the top six, seven guys in the league, um, still capable of being Henrik Lundqvist. Sure. That that narrative drove me nuts, and yet Igor Shosturkin is undeniably an incredible talent, and that puts the Rangers in a tough spot. You played with Henrik, you know the passion. You heard about the work he did back in Sweden to you know continue to drive on his game. Like I don't see this guy as being done by a long shot. From your vantage point, as a guy who knows him, as a guy who played for the Rangers, like how tough was that to watch, and where do you see this moving forward? You know, I'm not really sure where this goes, but I I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, Kev, we had talked about, and you did such a great piece on that, on in goal. You know, I've had a chance since we moved back here to the Metro New York area, try to get to the garden, given my schedule on the NHL network and get to games. And I literally stand at the glass at ice level, Henrik or whoever's playing for the Rangers right shoulder. And I've seen first, first hand, I don't know, 10, 12 games a year. You know, I probably saw six or seven of his starts this year prior to the pause, if not more. And to me, still, he still looks like Henrik Lundqvist to me, which is a great thing. Now, does that mean he's going to be able to play 50, 60, 60, 70 at that level? I don't think so. But do I still believe that he can play at a high level? Absolutely. Do I still, uh, in watching him play at that high level, do I still see a lot of the skill and reads and the ability to make saves? For sure. I thought he actually played well in the qualifier. I just thought uh, game two, the first goal he would he, he would have normally stopped. But aside from that, he looked good. He played really well. But what's hard, too, is you get measured. When you're great, you get measured against your own greatness. And in the event that he can't rip off a 930, 925, 922 save percentage consistently, then a lot of people that don't know the game as much as they think they know the game will say, well, Tank's done. He's not the same. You know what I mean? Like, that'll be their default. And as you said, you look deeper into the underlying numbers. And what you saw uh, really kind of aligned with what my eyes saw with me watching him up close and knowing him and being a former teammate of his and a friend of his. So where do I see this going? I think a lot of this will be on Henrik. Like, does Hank want to end his career in New York badly enough to at, to say, hey, he's willing to do that at the expense of games played? I don't know. Only Hank could answer that. Does he want it bad enough to where he wants to win a cup and he wants to go somewhere else for a year and maybe take a buyout and go to another team? I don't know. Only Hank can answer that. But I think one thing is clear is the New York Rangers, based on what I have slash haven't seen, they identify Shesterkin, who was money this year, and let's give him credit because he was awesome. They identify him as the now. Georgiev, who's come such a long way, and I've been a big fan of his too, uh, they identify him as being the now. They're both 24-year-old goalies. So then that leaves the question of what do they end up doing with Hank and what does Hank and the Rangers end up doing? Does he also does he actually want to retire? You know, something that's been floated around. I saw Brooksy Larry Burke, Hall of Fame writer here in New York with the Post, a hockey Hall of Fame writer. Uh, Brooksy said, you know, he suggested, does he potentially even want to go back to Sweden? Like, does he want to go back to Forlunda and play with his, his twin brother, uh, Joel, and try to win another Swedish championship? I, I, was he already won one? I don't know. I haven't talked to Hanky about it. 
I've been respecting his space and his, you know, his mental, his mind frame. And once everything dissipates, uh, maybe before he heads back to Sweden for the summer again, uh, him and I will hopefully meet up in the city and, and be able to have a little sushi and, and talk it through. Yeah, well, all, all I know is I agree with you on all those things. It, it is a tough spot, and, and we always want the storybook ending. Um, and it would look weird to see him in anything other than those iconic Bauer pads he's been wearing for the past couple of years, like in an, <laughs> right. in an era in an era where there is no sort of iconic equipment set up. He has one, and sure. it would look weird. But man, I just I just felt watching him like there's more there, and and I hope he keeps playing because as as a fan of goaltending, um, boy, have I loved watching him play the game and and the passion he has for it, like Luongo. No stone unturned. Always looking for ways to get better, man. I think we, we that's that's exactly what we need more of. And, and I'm with you. I don't think he's done. So hey, Weeksy, thank you very much for taking the time, buddy. Took more than I said I would. Really enjoyed. Uh, thank you for having me on the Instagram live earlier today too. Real honor for me to join the, the I mean really distinguished list of guests you've had on there. Um, I dragged it down a little bit, but I appreciate you scraping <laughs> the bottom of the barrel for me, buddy. Um, thanks for doing this, bud. Go, go enjoy what's less of your evening after a, a massive week of work for you. I appreciate that, man. Keep up the awesome work at InGoal. You guys do an incredible job. You're, you're leading uh, in what you do, cutting edge. It's a great resource for all of us, young and old, uh, in the goalie fraternity. For a lot of the, the grassroots from the little kids that are playing novice to midget to, you know, BCJ, Alberta J, U.S. College, minors, Europe pro to to the uh weekend warriors as well so and then also you do a great column on nhl.com with our crew at the league so keep up the great work man thanks for having me i'm going to kneel you again to have you rejoin me on the uh on my instagram live in the next little bit and thanks to all the great fans out there too we have a lot of amazing hockey fans and a lot of them have been very uh supportive during this time especially with the racial equality stuff a lot of them have been awesome and and just very supportive in general. A lot of players, a lot of people in the greater hockey community. So thanks for that too. Keep up the great work, bud. We'll talk to you soon. All right, buddy. Thanks so much, man. As if Kevin's not busy enough. I'm talking about weeks. Well, actually, Woody's the uh, same thing. This has been a really crazy time. Like So much fun. And uh, we're just starting out the traditional Stanley Cup playoffs with the uh, the, the first round. We got a long way to go, and uh, the Ingle Magazine and Ingle Radio podcast will be with you uh, all along this journey. But uh, just to, I want to give you guys both an opportunity to discuss uh, the the state and the future and the play of Henrik Lundqvist. Uh, Woody, just give me your thoughts. I, I mean, I. Th- Listen, am I going to be a Henrik Lundqvist apologist or accused of it fairly? Like, yeah, it would be a fair accusation. I'm a massive fan. Love what he's done throughout his career and also not going to hide it. He's been very good to us. This is a guy that even when he became a superstar with the Rangers would return emails and answer questions for us. He's been very gracious with his time. He's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer because of the consistency. And I have praised him and will continue to praise him, even including this lockout where he didn't just go home and rest on his laurels. He went back to Sweden and worked on things he thought could be better in his game. Thought he was really good in game one. Uh, you know, had, had had a couple tough moments in game two and obviously didn't get the chance to play game three. Our article from Clearside Analytics by Paul Campbell on ingolmag.com and Ingol Premium showed people that in the first half of this season, he was among the top six or seven goaltenders in the NHL when you adjust for the quality of shots he saw. And that's the other thing we saw in this Rangers series. 
they are not good enough defensively. It doesn't matter who's in net. That has to improve. I think he can still play. Maybe, and I thought Kevin said it best, and massive props to Kevin Weeks for giving us some time there because, like you said, Darren, you know you're in the industry. This is not just as fans watching all these games. This has been as busy a time as I can remember with all these games going on, and Kevin's been right in the middle. So to give us a half an hour like that, can't thank him enough. Like, huge for the goalie union to step up like that. Um, But I thought he said it really good. Can he be the Henrik we know for 60, 70 games like the Rangers used to play the wheels off him? Probably not at age 30 or 38, sorry. But he's still showing that he can be that guy. He was that guy for half a season, half a season before they threw in the three goaltender rotation. Um, Will he get the opportunity somewhere else? That's a big contract. The Rangers would have to eat some. I don't know what's going to happen. But I do think that the NHL is better with Henrik Lundqvist in it because I know I sure as hell enjoy watching him play. And I enjoy the passion he brings to the position. And, and from a biased perspective, I've always appreciated his willingness to talk about it openly with us, about technical things, about gear. He's, he, is, he is what we love about goaltending in a lot of respects. And so I, I'm happier when there's an NHL with Henrik Lundqvist in it, and I hope we get the opportunity to see it as much as, like I said to, to Weeksy, um, Man, would it be weird seeing him in a different uniform? His his look is even his look is iconic. I know like the gear, yeah. right? Like well, it would just be weird. But. Ingle Mag and Ingle Rady, the podcast has documented how much movement is expected before the start of next season, and I wonder if uh, if he can find a place like what we saw in Edmonton, that type of situation, or Calgary, where it's it's more fifty fifty, and uh, and you can afford that uh, if if they split the money, it might might be per- It'll be weird seeing him outside of a of Ranger uniform. But I've come to accept that uh, after the the St. Louis era with Martin Brodeur, uh, there's just sometimes it just happens. Sometimes we we have to live with it. It doesn't define you. Uh, Woody, uh, thanks for that. Uh, Hutch, uh, just a comment on what you said. That, that's a tough example you brought up there with Martin. Brodeur I know, but in it's St. just Louis because no, but it's interesting that that you did because because Kevin actually raised the point. Like, can he play anywhere else? Everybody can and, play. And I don't mean do we see him there, but it, but just oh, the yeah. way he plays the game and, and with the team he'd be with, can he be successful anywhere else? Uh, so very interesting that you brought that up, and that's my fear that it would end up that way somewhere else, and that would be really sad. But that's not how we remember um, Marty. No, 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 no. And I'm not one of those guys who say, a, you know, a player has to leave after a championship. They can leave on their own terms however they love the game, and, and he can keep he can still play. Aren't we headed for one of the most interesting off-seasons yeah. ever, though? And it's going to be fascinating to see how that goalie rotation ends up. Well, and hey, the one thing about Lundqvist going somewhere else, like I think he could adjust. <laughs> Frankly, I think he'd just it'd be like heaven sent to actually have a team that plays defense in front of him. Um, I think he could adjust system-wise. But, I mean, just you talked about, Hutch, you asked about the habits and the routines and the like, like he's been in the same city, the same practice rink, all those things, massive adjustment. And the biggest of all, Henrik Lundqvist without Benoit Lair. That would be really fascinating to watch because those two have been glove in hand since he started in the league. And I'll never forget Benoit's lying to me. Henrik's first year in the league. And people forget this. Henrik Lundqvist came from Sweden as a backwards flow, aggressive, early, retreat with the rush goaltender. And in one preseason and exhibition and training camp, he transformed himself into a goal line out, spot to spot goalie. And... Ben Waller gave me the quote, I think it was later that year, maybe the next season. Um, the greats have the ability to adjust and alter their game and adapt quickly. 
And that's why he thought at that time that Lundquist was going to be great. He was a seventh round pick we'd never heard of to that point for the most part. And Benny was so confident that this kid was going to be that good. And he was right. So I think that partnership and ending that would be a fascinating part of, you know, what happens to Hendrik Lundqvist moving forward as well. I wonder if Hank can learn the uh, DH. The diagonal horizontal? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Did, you, did we just come up if with a term today, uh, diagonal horizontal? The I DH? Hope so. Reverse I VH? Hope so. I'd love to see that. VH, yeah. DH. I, I pretty much just go with the horizontal, which is usually lying on my side <laughs> after the puck's in the net. I'm a big believer in the crest down. Yeah, the attached to the horizontal. ice. Uh, what's uh, what's up on the website right now? Oh wow, um, Tons. we have a ton of content up on the website. We've got some good people doing a lot of good work. Um, Maria Mountains uh, back with us uh, with another um, another segment of the off ice training where we've now got several people contributing to the off ice training component of the site. Um, Kevin's got a really interesting look at um, the rise of Russian goaltending and the importance of skating. And I think that's uh, something we better be careful because we could dive into for 45 minutes here as well. But uh, definitely encourage people to go check that out. And we've got uh, Evgeny Nabokov uh, showing some skating drills there. Um, more pro reads, of course. Carey Price, James Reimer, and uh, Freddie Brathwaite with a with a with um, another skating drill. So skating, um, as we've talked about, sort of at the forefront right now. And a whole bunch about the playoffs, about how different routines have affected goalies going into this who should have started in the different rounds. We could maybe do a, a retrospective on Paul Campbell's fantastic work along with ClearSight Analytics. So tons of stuff up there. What, do you, what are you enjoying? Uh, pretty much pretty much all of it. Um, and we're going to have, you know, like I, I teased this the other week, but we've got some interviews set up here, both for the podcast and for ingolmag.com premium uh, with some of the goaltenders that aren't taking part in the Stanley Cup qualifiers and now the Stanley Cup playoffs. Some of the guys that are looking at four months off. So I'm fascinated to hear. Oh, we have Ryan Miller coming on next week. Um, he's going he's gonna to tell us what it's been like, uh, where he's at with his career. Do some video review sessions with us. Uh, we got Linus Elmark uh, from, from Sweden, from the Buffalo Sabres, scheduled to join us as well. So uh, we're going to start hitting those guys. And as, as fascinating and as enjoyable as, as it is to talk with you two about what they're seeing in these playoffs and what we're seeing in these playoffs, I'm, I'm really keen to see what NHL goal or other NHL goaltenders are seeing, um, you know, how much they think is rust, how much they think is, you know, maybe fatigue because of the uniqueness of the schedule. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting some of those voices as well. Middle of August. Means it's Miller time. Crack one open and uh, enjoy it. Uh, that's next week on Ingle Radio, the podcast. Uh, thanks to Kevin Weeks for joining us this week, and thanks to you for listening. Hope you've enjoyed all the action, and uh, as well as uh, let us know what you think about uh, our opinions on what's happened so far during this 2020 Stanley Cup playoffs. For Kevin Woodley, David Hutchison, I'm Darren Millard. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and enjoy the action.